Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. So the backdrop for today's conversation is public health and the environment. So how is climate change impacting public health in a negative way? And specifically, we're going to be looking at an initiative that I find remarkable. It's the Children's Environmental Health Indicators Initiative, or CHEHI. And to talk about this, it's a pleasure to welcome onto the show Sidhi Aryal, who is the Regional Director for Asia-Pacific and Vital Strategies. And Vital Strategies work with governments across the world to help them strengthen public health systems. Without further ado, Sidhi, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much, Alberto. It's a pleasure for me and uh, it's good to know you and thank you for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're out there in Nepal today and I'm here in the UK. So we have a little bit of a time difference, uh, but thank you for making the time to join us today on the Do One Better podcast. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about uh, Vital Strategies? What's Vital Strategies all about? So uh, thank you again. Um, Vital Strategies is a global public health organization. Um, Our motto is to reimagine public health. Uh, We work for a world where everyone everywhere is protected by equitable and effective public health systems. So we have a number of uh, important programs that are operational in various geographies around the world. And I myself am the regional director for vital strategies in the APAC region. And so in my region, we have several important programs of vital strategies, wherein we work with the governments, we work with the technical institutions and public health professionals in various countries. Um, So the environmental health program is a growing portfolio for us and also a really important program that works on key environmental health issues that the Asia Pacific region faces. We have a tobacco control program, which has been around in this region for quite some time through vital strategies work. We have the Data for Health program, which uh, works with governments to make sure that data is used for decision making and there is a culture of being accountable to both in terms of the budgets you're mobilizing, but as well as using the rationale from data to guide public health programming. We work with governments in this geography on uh, strengthening the civil registration and vital statistics function, the CRVS as we like to call it. We also have cancer registry program across the region. And then we have research portfolio uh, where we have done some of the major large scale tuberculosis region, um, global in scope, but also around this region. So basically um, we are public health organization and we've we've been working with governments across the Asia Pacific uh, in this region. Do you work uh, globally beyond the Asia Pacific region? Give us a, what's your footprint? Okay, so uh, we have offices in um, five, six different uh, places around the world in terms of the you know, brick and mortar offices. So our global office is located in New York, which is where everything started uh, in terms of the core uh, function of the organization. That's where it was uh, set up. Our CEO is uh, domiciled in uh, Paris, France, which is where our European office is. Um, We have an office in India. We have an office in China. We have a few offices in China. We have an office in Ethiopia. 
and also in Brazil, which is our South American office. But more importantly, we work through consultants and individuals that are embedded within the public health systems of different governments and different countries that we work in. And uh, that number, you know, goes up and down. But uh, so far, uh, in terms of our uh, strength in numbers, we are about, you know, 500 employees globally at the moment. Okay. And you've been around for how long? So um, the different offices have different kind of uh, length uh, that, that we have been around. Uh, vital strategies um, emanated or originated from a previous organization, um, which is the World Lung Foundation, that, that has been around for a long time. And in terms of uh, our collaboration with the International Union um, or uh, the Union for uh, Lung, Lung TB Diseases, um, you know, it's also been around for a long time. Vital Strategies uh, has been working since 2003, 2004. And in Singapore, the um, registration for Vital Strategies Asia-Pacific happened in the year 2017, and we have a core workforce of about um, 20 people uh, that are public health professionals and supportive uh, personnel in terms of the grants, the finance, and other functions uh, that are here for addressing the regional priorities. Got you, got you. And when you say you work through consultants and so forth, so... Um, tell us a little bit about who your clients actually are. Uh, what's the revenue uh, source look like? Who, who is it that grabs or phones up or emails Vital Strategy and say, look, we need some help? So basically, it's the governments, um, you know, um, and, and, and the modality is different because there are different streams of work that happen. But basically, in the context of a tobacco control program or data for health program or the civil registration program, these are important functions um, that the governments and the ministries of health typically are in conversation with us about. And these are also programs that happen to be within the purview of the specific countries own reporting obligations to sustainable development goals and the targets that they have. So our modality of working is uh, we work at scale and we work with the technical expertise that are very high quality. So what happens is typically a philanthropic organization like uh, you know uh, Gates Foundation or Bloomberg Philanthropy or some other foundation would grant us a certain amount of money with the intention of addressing a particular countries or a group of countries, if it happens to be a regional program or the whole world and some chosen countries, if it happens to be a global program uh, to address within a specified period of time. So for example, for our road safety program, we have a number of important countries that are priority countries for Bloomberg philanthropies. And what we do is we typically have a conversation with the countries and uh, the countries will determine what their priorities are and what the gaps are to address within the priorities that they have set. What are the technical sets that they need in the country? And then we will fulfill that. And we would also provide the funding to hold several events, both within and outside of the government's core programming of public health in that particular country. So for a country as big as India, for example, for road safety program, we have a number of cities and principalities within India where our embedded uh, surveillance experts and embedded engineers and embedded media experts are working within the 
Indian ministries, both at the center as well as at the provincial level. That's the modality of our work. Got you, got you. And you mentioned different modalities, and I, I'm just, um, and I guess the answer might be diverse in what you give me, but if I'm trying to understand the stakeholders, you mentioned some of the philanthropic organizations like Bloomberg, uh, governments, and you receiving funding from a philanthropic body to go ahead and address a specific a thematic issue in country X or region Y. Um, is it the case that the government already has in mind some sort of issue that needs to be addressed and they're liaising with the philanthropy in question and then they bring you in to act as a sort of uh, execution or delivery uh, partner in some capacity? Or, um, or does this sort of uh, the sequencing could it look many different ways? Could it be that you already have the expertise and you go to a philanthropist and say, look, this is what we want to do and we ideally like to do it here. Give us a little bit of insight into how that all works. Like, is it a chicken and egg, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, there's different modalities of how that works out. So, for example, in a country A, uh, let's say, uh, for example, Indonesia, where we have existing collaborations and existing programs already operational, we would go in and we would go in to implement a certain program or to uh, help government uh, shore up their capacity to address a particular program dimension that they would like to, um, you know, shore up their capacity in, like, for example, use of data or the civil registration and vital statistics. So the government would then probably tell us that, look, you know, the national program of civil registration is working out well. Now, we have some objectives that we have set for ourselves to further strengthen um, this program in some provinces, for example, province province A, province B, uh, would you be kind enough to talk to us and see how, you know, that might shape up or what that looks like? So the modality A may be then we go into our existing partners, funding partners, and say Indonesia or some other country has expressed interest to grow their programming um, in, in, in this particular field. The other modality might also be that the funder may have a pot of money that's available for addressing the priorities that they have set for themselves and might come to Vital Strategies as a core implementing partner and say, tell me or give me a list of five countries globally where you might want to um, put a pilot program that addresses uh, you know, alcohol abuse or the um, food safety or cardiovascular health. So in which case, then we would, you know, draw up a rationale, a program uh, dimensions and choose the partners and go back to them with the budget and say, here's what we propose. Let's talk about it. And then we'd come into an agreement. So there are different modalities. Mm -hmm. And I imagine even though it's a big planet, it's probably a small world, right? I mean, everybody speaks to everybody, fairly fluid interactions and, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the in-country interactions in the course of uh, public health work uh, happens uh, at the level of countries. Uh, regional interactions happen uh, in regions. So for example, from where I sit, my office is in Singapore. Um, a lot of the regional offices for different development partners are in um, either uh, Bangkok in Thailand. Some of them are in Manila for the ADB, for example. We have the regional development mission for USAID in Bangkok. We have several key global headquarters or regional headquarters of different philanthropes in Singapore, for example. So it's very fluid. And these conversations also happen in New York, our Europe office is conversing with different European foundations. But because we are a 
um, I would want to say matrix type organization. So the leadership team for vital strategies is integrated into the different regional and country offices with the technical functions that are you know, spread out throughout the different offices that we have. So we find ourselves working across the different time zones at various intervals, which also makes things quite fun because a typical team that works in a country A, uh, so for example, our Cambodia Civil Registration and Vital Statistics Program has someone who is domiciled in New York, someone who is in Singapore, and someone who is in Brazil as a technical expert, kind of working together in a team um, to, to help about that particular intervention. Great, great. Now, you, you know, you're covering a, a broad range of different thematic areas and, uh, and geographically as well. I want to touch on, on one specific initiative of yours that I've heard really great things about, and I'd love to find out more about it as well. I understand, and I might, might be mispronouncing it, I think it's called CHEHI, and it's a Children's Environmental Health Indicators Initiative. What is that all about? Um, tell us a little bit. What I would want to give you um, and, and, and to the listeners is a broad stroke in terms of the whole issue of environment and Asia Pacific and in terms of cities as well, where we have major cities in the world in this kind of uh, geographic region, right? So we have about 55% of the world population currently living in cities. And some estimates put that number to be going up to 70% by 2050. And I think because the Asia Pacific region is home to 20 of the world's 33 mega cities currently, now that number is expected to rise to, you know, 27 by the year 2030. So that is expected to put a lot of pressure. The pressure is already there, uh, but the population pressure, increasing population, all of that is going to result in inadequate basic services, such as access to safe drinking water, uh, access to sanitation services, um, gaps in infrastructure, such as housing, uh, proper waste disposal mechanisms, and also in terms of the crumbling health infrastructure. Now, you know, on the back of COVID, we have seen what that can result in, even for developed, you know, city governments like Singapore. But in terms of the consequences, I think the climate change and environmental degradation is going to cause more and more negative impacts on human health, livelihoods, and key infrastructure, right? So I think an environmental health indicator, and, and you asked me specifically about the children's environmental health indicator, I will talk about that. But overall, for your audience, an environmental health indicator is a um, a way of presenting summarized, aggregated, and non-identifiable data to describe a population's health status. Now, this is typically in relation to environmental factors. So unlike raw data sets or effect estimations from research findings, um, environmental health indicators are descriptive, and they typically use ecologic or cross-sectional data. Now, I think in terms of the broad categories, they fall into four major categories. Ones that look at the health outcomes, environmental health indicators that look at, second one is environmental exposure. A third one is that they look at socio-demographic context. And then the fourth and the final one is they look at the actions taken or interventions made in terms of categories of environmental health data. So, in a typical country, and this is where I get into more detail about the CHEHI itself, determining or researching the specific or precise relationship between environmental exposure and health outcomes is very challenging because 
high quality epidemiologic research is costly. And you and I know it, that it also is very time consuming because it requires individual level monitoring, not only of the exposures, but also of the past or future health outcomes. Now, despite this limitation, and what works for our favor is that when scientific literature has already established such relationships elsewhere, it is generally not necessary to continually validate well-established relationships in new settings. So it is for that reason that we can look at issues like air pollution with reference to what other countries elsewhere have done in terms of determining the research and to advance understanding of some other countries in the region. So in 2019, Vital Strategies and UNICEF started to work on a partnership to develop a set of children's environmental health indicators, or as you called it rightly, CHEHIS, uh, for two countries in Asia Pacific, China and Myanmar. So the initiative was largely looking at engaging different stakeholders, including government stakeholders, academic entities, and different environmental organizations, health organizations, to discuss the children's environmental health priorities. And so we managed to produce prioritized indicators and systematic literature review of the whole process and determined the risk factors that are associated with the most burdensome diseases. And so, you know, I think in terms of the children's environmental health indicators itself, um, the benefits and the gaps for the region, if I may conclude your question with these two kind of, you know, broad strokes, and in terms of benefits, they help quantify the magnitude of the public health problem that the countries are dealing with. They detect notable trends in environmental exposures and health outcomes as well. They help identify subpopulations at risk of environmentally attributable illnesses, and they help direct and evaluate measures for control and prevention. Now, in terms of the gaps that exist across the different countries in the region, and this is something that is also, you know, several of them are also gaps for public health writ large. There is a lack of a public facing data, which is specific to children's environmental health in many countries across the region. There is also a lack of children's environmental health profiles and reports that are, you know, relevant for that particular country. And there is a limited capacity to analyze and present data to the general public. And the last one and the most important one is that there is an insufficient coordination between health and environmental data owners. And these are typically owners who like to kind of keep their data sets within themselves. And there is no culture of data sharing and collaboration. So both benefits as well as common gaps and challenges that we need to address as well. Let me take a pause here. Thank you. Really, really incredible stuff. I know what you mean about hoarding data. Not everybody's so inclined to share uh, the insights that they've gathered. Um, the two countries, again, that you're active uh, with regards to this initiative, re repeat those two names. So uh, we are not active in Myanmar at the moment, uh, given the coup that happened, as you know. Um, but, but we are quite active in China. And it's unfortunate because before the coup, when our operations were ongoing in Myanmar, the 
enthusiasm and the way that different stakeholders were coming together in that particular country was just amazing. As you know, um, I've discussed this with you before. I used to, I, I lived in Myanmar and in terms of the need, it's, it's perennial in terms of the need in, in, in that country. But unfortunately, after the coup d'etat, we you know, have paused working as have many international partners. But otherwise in China, you know, the, the four building blocks, as we said, for Chehi are all taking shape. The first one is our work with the concerned Chinese government authorities, as well as UNICEF in China, to improve children's environmental health indicator tracking at the national and sub-national level. That work is moving ahead. The second building block, as we like to say it, is to improve data collection, the analysis of data, and communication of children's environmental health data and indicators through data portals or through mechanized communication channel. That is also progressing. The third block, which is a building block, is to increase the visibility with the public, especially young people, in terms of understanding of children's environmental health issues. That is also ongoing. And then the final thing, which I think we really would like to do in the region in different countries, is to develop a sustainable network of children's environmental health advocates and activists who can spearhead efforts in not only the research, but also policy review, action, awareness, taking with them the community stakeholders as well. So we are super excited about the prospects of what is unfolding in China, but also what we have seen achieved in Myanmar, um, but more importantly, what the rest of the countries in the region, um, uh, those that have expressed interest with us and those that UNICEF Regional is also eager to kind of expand working with us. We are excited about that. I understand. So Myanmar is on, on hold right now due to the turbulence. I understand. And with regards to China, is that across the whole of the country or specific regions? Uh, there are specific regions within the country and we work very closely with uh our partner UNICEF on the ground and other not-for-profit partners within China as well. But I think because the environmental health risks factors and uh, you know, the child illness and death are country specific, the need for data being you know, systematic and approaches being aligned with that particular country's needs uh, in terms of how they would like to reduce, minimize and prevent the environmental risk factors is also um, adapted to that particular country with partners within that country. And I think uh, in China, they have their own design, but the innovation of Jehi itself is flexible enough for any particular country to take that tool and to adapt that tool along with the partners that they would like to bring into kind of, you know, the stakeholder working group of that tool as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the Children's Environmental Health Indicators Initiative uh, which you're mentioning, you're collaborating with UNICEF. One of the documents I always enjoy reading from UNICEF, even though sometimes it's it's quite sobering, the the information that you're getting from it, is there are these mix, you know, the multiple indicator cluster surveys that they have for specific countries. Um, I wish they had more, um, but they're not easy to fund and so forth. But they're very insightful. Do these indicators on the on the children's environmental health feed into the mix? Perhaps do they do they op, do they get published side by side? Um, obviously the mix are in a range of countries, not just two, but d are you familiar with that and how these? 
That's an excellent question. And I think we also talked about it. We debated about it for quite a long time. And then also we um, believed in sustainability as a core practice. So this innovation of Chehi, it actually rests on the premise that data for tracking environmental health threats is all routinely collected. So what was lacking and what is lacking is the collaborative initiative and processes to develop a tracking system, right? So countries can develop their own Chehis based on existing data sources and global evidence of associations between, you know, you name it, climate, environment, health, making it an economical solution that any country can accomplish. And I think because it's aligned with also the mixed data, it doesn't put additional burden of having data collection done outside of the SDG reporting, indicator reporting, so that it really dovetails with the in-country effort. And it's also helpful for the regional offices to also collate and to kind of produce the data, to analyze the data, um, reducing, minimizing, and preventing risk factors, um, which are lacking, but also utilizing the information thrust or the partnership thrust to propel initiatives for children's protection forward. Excellent. So a lot of the times the, the data gathering is there, the analysis, the creative way of analyzing the data, that's the bit that's arguably most challenging. And the prioritization of data, because you know the data may be gathered, but when you prioritize a certain subset of data along children's priorities, maybe women's priorities, I'm just talking about thematic issues that countries might want to do, then it just puts it in a different thrust and a different kind of a priority action, and it kind of helps as well. And I think you alluded to it a, a minute ago, but the beauty of this is that you could replicate this uh, across the world in different countries, being country agnostic to some extent, but being able to benefit from this and replicate scale and, and provide ultimately better visibility to these indicators um, to countries all over the place. Absolutely right. And it's a very important point that you make again, is that, you know, the Chehi innovation is highly adaptable to various social, economic, and political contexts. And it can be replicated in any country because it entails a one-of-a-kind process of developing the indicators that can be tailored to that particular country or even at the regional level, that particular region's context in collaboration with multiple stakeholders. So as part of our pilot implementation, we work with the governments of China and Myanmar in multi-stakeholder consultative processes creating a fundamental list of Chehis for both the countries, right? So China and Myanmar have vastly different government systems, different populations, different ethnicities, different practices, different environmental threats, but yet both of them could develop their own unique Chehis in a relatively short time, which happened you know, in less than a year. So that tells me two things. One, as you rightly said, that regardless of the system of government or governance, these tools can work. And then the second is that the, you know, innovative practices, like, you know, the U.S. has a long history of working with universities and working with cities at the sub-national level to champion environmental health causes, is that the practice of sharing innovations that happen in a developed setting like the U.S. can also be replicated in developing country settings or LMIC settings outside of that particular geography. But I think as a, as a public health uh, professional who was born in Nepal, it's a developing country, um, you know, who has lived 
in uh, Thailand, who has lived in Myanmar, who has been educated in the UK, in Denmark, lived in the US, went to school in the US. I feel like the, 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 the thrust of collaboration as public health stakeholders across the world is something that is really dear and is something really noble. And despite the political kind of, you know, geopolitical issues or geopolitical flavor of the month or flavor of the year kind of uh, issue, I think we as public health professionals need to make sure that we value exchanging information, sharing best practices and working in a collaborative fashion because my border, you know, doesn't contain, you know, public health threats just by my military ability only. This world is like seamless, right? It goes from one country to another. Living in Nepal, I mean, because, you know, even if we may not have uh, factories that pollute the environment, because we are very, you know, in the smack middle of China and India, our environment in terms of air quality is interlinked. The world is the same way. I'm not sure if I answered your question right, but that's how I feel. No, that's great. I gather you have a healthy appetite for ensuring that um, that public health professionals are quite dispassionate in analyzing the data and putting political considerations aside wherever possible so that they're actually looking after the public health's benefit more than anything else. Absolutely. And in these times, these are trying times, and it's very difficult for uh, professionals in the public health field to maintain that integrity. And I think that's something that as a you know, as a developing country public health professional who has benefited from my training in the US, my training in Europe, but also my, you know, um, length of residency in different government systems and governance systems that each country has its own style. So we might have a liking or not to that particular style in that particular geography, but public health is public health. So I agree with you. That's how I feel. We need to be dispassionate and we just need to be objective. Mm. And now you, you delved into it a little bit, but I'd love to find out a little bit more about your personal narrative. So you've lived in Nepal, Myanmar, China, Singapore, the US, UK possibly. Um, you seem to be a paragon of globalization. Give us a little bit of uh, insight into your trajectory and, uh, and, and you and how did you end up where you are today? Thank you, Alberto. I think I, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal. Um, the the city of temples as 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 uh, it's referred to, um, and I uh, was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to be educated in a fairly decent school because my parents uh, prioritized uh, education for all three kids. I have two sisters, and uh, I was able to gain a scholarship to go uh, study in the U.S. Uh, undergraduate uh, studies. I was in Chicago. Then um, I also, uh, you know, I came back to Nepal when I finished my studies, but I also worked with uh, Solomon Smith Barney for a little bit when I was in Illinois. So, you know, I, I'm familiar with trades and, you know, and, and, and institutional equity, but some, something pulled me back to Nepal because I always found that my passion for interacting with people, my passion for, um, you know, weaving in people's stories and living a life that was beyond 
making resources for myself or only looking after my own. And uh, I started to get into public health work when I returned back to Nepal. Um, I wrote some funding proposals and uh, I worked with US government uh, funding through Family Health International uh, in, in terms of injecting drug use prevention, uh, HIV prevention, uh, working with uh, female sex workers. And, and that work kind of uh, dug, you know, brought me deeper into wanting to learn more about public health. So uh, my, my better half and I, we both kind of met each other working in the field as well. So we both received scholarship from European Commission for Erasmus Mundus funding uh, to study masters in international health in European institutions. And then I continued on to study a PhD in global, global health systems. And then I came back to the region again and continued my work. But I've worked in malaria, I've worked in TB, I've worked in dengue, uh, you know, lymphatic filariasis, I've worked in health systems uh, in the greater Mekong, South Asia regions of the world. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. It's a fascinating story. As you know, I, I always ask my guests for a key takeaway at the end of every episode. And I'd love to find out what yours is. What's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to, uh, to today's episode? Thank you so much for this opportunity, uh, Alberto. I think I reflect back on my own life. And I think for your uh, you know, viewers or listeners, I think what I'd like to share is that if, if you have a passion, particularly for the young ones, right? If there is something that you're passionate about, please follow through. I think because we lived during the COVID era, I think we understood the importance of really following your passion and not living a life which you believe or you've been made to believe is the life that you need to pursue. Once that, you know, you go after money, you go after power, you go after like all of these things, right? Of course, money is important because you need to take care of your family, you have your obligations. But I think once you follow your passion, Everything else in life also follows you, right? In terms of happiness, inner happiness. I mean, just a final thought on this. Like, I think um, because, you know, I'm, I'm at that age now where I'm also reflecting on life, the big questions of life. So I think for me, the, you know, um, uh, three things aligning in life is really important. You know, one is what you are thinking. Second is how you are verbalizing your thoughts. And the third is how you're actually working on your verbalization. So if there is an alignment amongst those three things, like what do you think, what do you say, and what you do, a person is going to live a less complicated life as, as he or she would otherwise. So I'd like to just leave with those thoughts. I love it. Well, follow your passion. Can't argue against that. And uh, it's been a wonderful hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks so much for the... Uh, for the passion, for the insight, for, for enlightening us with and the work you're doing. I wish you continued success with everything you're doing. And, uh, and I look forward to welcoming you back onto the show so that we can spend a little bit more time talking about these indicators and hopefully um, seeing Chehi deployed elsewhere uh, in, in other countries that, uh, that would provide policymakers with really useful insight. So thank you. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's been a pleasure. It's really good knowing you and take your best wishes to you as well. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with CT Ariel, the Regional Director for Asia Pacific at Vital Strategies. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, 
Just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much for downloading this episode. It is an absolute pleasure producing these shows for you week after week, bringing you insight and case studies that you find useful and that enable you to take action in a positive way to drive forward the global sustainability agenda. Thanks so much, and I'll catch you next week.